Okay, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining in today. Today we are talking about the impact of New York's aggregate trust fund on the exposure in your cases. And if that sounds like a little bit of an esoteric topic to many people, it is. The aggregate trust fund is confusing New York only uh, fund that does impact the way we settle and uh, price cases for closure. And so it is something we need to learn about and talk about and be fluent in. And I'm gonna take us through what I hope are a couple practical examples showing what the aggregate, aggregate trust funds impact is on a couple different settlement scenarios. So let's dive into this topic and start talking about it. What is the aggregate trust fund? Well, it was created to protect workers from the potential of an insurance carrier default. Before 2007, the aggregate trust fund was limited to major cases, which were mainly death and permanent total disability cases. And the idea was that the indemnity value of a large case, like a permanent total disability case or a death case, would be paid into the aggregate trust fund by an insurance carrier. And then the insurance carrier would turn around and pay out that indemnity at that weekly value to the injured worker or their family. And the idea was to protect the injured worker from the potential that the insurance carrier that uh, was paying the weekly indemnity amount to them uh, went bankrupt or became illiquid and couldn't meet its obligations. Now, of course, if you're playing along at home and I hope you're listening to what I've just told you, you'll say, but Greg, isn't that what the guarantee fund is for? Isn't that why we have a state liquidation bureau? Isn't that what I'm already paying surcharges for? And of course, the answer is yes. Um, but the agri-trust fund has been created and is still um, impacting our cases today. Now, self-insureds are invited to participate voluntarily by paying the indemnity components of their uh, long-term obligations into the agri-trust fund. But of course, no self-insureds do this, and I'll explain why. The agri-trust fund is administered by the state insurance fund, who of course is exempted from paying into the fund themselves. It works like this. You are required to deposit the future exposure with the state of New York, where the case has a date of loss after March 13, 2007 or later. Currently, this agri-trust fund is controlling about $250 million in hard assets, uh, plus they have a $220 million state appropriation that they can tap. And there's a statute in place that says if the um, agri-trust fund becomes illiquid, the state of New York is obligated to contribute up to $220 million uh, to correct that. The law exempts self-insureds from having to pay the indemnity portion of their awards into the agri-trust fund, and it also exempts the state insurance fund. Roughly 3% of the deposits uh, that go into the uh, fund annually are paid for that administration. Now, the last time I was able to find a Department of Finance and Insurance audit online came from 2016, and it audited deposit activity, which occurred before 2014, and that's where I'm coming up with this roughly half billion dollar uh, asset valuation that I'm talking about. And the deposit activity generated approximately $76 million in positive cash flow revenue for the fund. 
Now, what happens when you pay into the aggregate trust fund? You, the carrier, think that you're being relieved of your future indemnity liability, and in fact, that's the point of paying into the aggregate trust fund, but there are some examples where that is not actually true. So, for example, um, if you're instructed to pay a sum of $100,000 representing future indemnity payments that are to be made weekly to an injured worker, and later that injured worker goes back into workers' compensation court, reopens their case, and gets an even higher award, you, the carrier, will still be liable for the difference. Uh, you will have to contribute additional fresh money to the aggregate trust fund. The same works in reverse, so if a case that's already been established, an award generated, and direction, judicial direction, for you to contribute the indemnity proceeds to the aggregate trust fund has been made by a judge, and that award is subsequently reduced. And the easy example for this is the claimant who is later found to be a fraud and therefore ineligible for future indemnity benefits, the amounts would be refunded to you. In all events, uh, whether you've paid uh, an amount into the aggregate trust fund or you're getting a refund or there is an increased amount going, the carrier is always responsible for ongoing medical because remember, medical under the workers' compensation law in New York is for life for an established injury. Now, what's interesting is after 2007, um, two major changes to the way the aggregate trust fund uh, were administered occurred. First, and probably the biggest one, is that the fund can now directly negotiate Section 32 lump sum settlements with the claimants who are entitled to the proceeds of the indemnities that have been deposited in the aggregate trust fund. So what that means is the aggregate trust fund, after you deposit the amount for future indemnity into the fund, can turn around and do a Section 32 settlement directly with the claimant. And the interesting component here is if they settle the case for less than the amount deposited, which is what they are trying to do in most instances, the aggregate trust fund gets to keep the difference. The second thing that happened after the reforms of 2007 is that many, many more case types, more than just death cases, more than just dependency cases, and more than just permanent total disability cases, are now required to make deposits to the aggregate trust fund. And we're seeing more and more judges' decisions which say the claimant has a permanent partial disability, or in New York parlance, we say a loss of wage earning capacity award of 60% uh, loss of wage earning capacity, and uh, deposit into the aggregate trust fund is directed after the trust fund does a calculation of present value. So we're seeing that in all different types of cases, not just perm totals and not just death cases. How the deposit is calculated is also interesting um, for the historians out there. There's been a number of special bulletins which have um, different effective dates for all intents and purposes. Um, almost every case you're ever going to see falls under the most recent special bulletin, which is Bulletin 222, subsection C, which was um, issued in 2012 and indicates a 5% present value discount or interest rate to be applied to uh, all deposits made with the aggregate trust fund. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? Well, it means that the amount of indemnity that needs to be deposited is going to be reduced down to present value. And if you look at that special bulletin 222C, and I would encourage everyone to go 
uh, Google it. it. It's on the board's website. You can find that. You will see pages and pages and pages and pages of actuarial tables that look something like this. And these tables um, were created in 1914, and they are the um, Dutch life and remarriage uh, tables that are currently uh, and still in use. The current discount percentage is 5%. And so what you do is you look at these tables and you can use them to calculate the approximate, and I'm, I'm saying approximate because the actuarials uh, who are doing this are using a little more contemplated formula than just using the tables, and you can use that information to calculate the present value. If you review the special bulletin, the beginning of the bulletin contains lots of examples and tables. Um, they show present value. They, they show various formulas. Because calculating present value, for example, in a dependency case where there's a widow and three children of varying ages is complicated. Uh, and they, and, um, you're going to want to defer to the actuary to do that math. But I use the tables in this to approximate what the approximate present value is going to be so we can help our clients determine the amount of the deposit. Now, this is going to come up a lot for you in your cases involving a loss of wage earning capacity award. And so uh, we've created this table here, which shows you some common discounts. And if you look on the very far left-hand side of your screen, you're seeing an LWEC percentage. That's loss of wage earning capacity percentage. Everywhere else in the world, we call that permanent partial disability. But in New York, we call it loss of wage earning capacity. And the number of capped weeks that goes along with each percentage of permanent residual disability. So, for example, looking at this chart on the left, if someone has a loss of wage earning capacity percentage of 15%, they are entitled to capped number of weeks of 225 weeks. Well, you can then you take that 225 weeks and go over to your present value discount tables and do some simple math and realize, well, uh, that week's number of weeks is going to be discounted to 202.8121 weeks, as you can see in that translation table that we've created there for you. What's profound about this, or the big takeaway here really, is that the longer the, or the larger the percentage of uh, loss of wage earning capacity, which again results in a longer period of indemnity payments, the bigger and more profound that discount is going to be. You can see that down at the bottom end of the loss of wage earning capacity chart, 225 weeks being reduced to 202 weeks, you know, something like a 10% reduction. But as you go up to the top of the chart, 99% loss of wage earning capacity resulting in an award of 525 weeks. That's about 10 years of benefits. And you can see that gets reduced much more significantly by about 20%. It comes down to just around 415 weeks. So the more, uh, the, the larger the award, the more profound that present discount is gonna be. So let's talk about the impact of exposure and look at some practical examples. Let's look at a very uh, typical loss of wage earning capacity finding of 35%. A 35% loss of wage earning capacity award would equate to 275 weeks. Let's presume a high average weekly wage earner, so they're going to get an, a weekly award of $450 a week. Just multiplying 275 weeks times the weekly rate of $450 would give you your base value, $123,750. But after we reduce it to present value, again, using special bulletin 222C, that value is reduced 
uh, to approximately $109,000, so a pretty significant reduction there. And as we use bigger awards, so let's look at a loss of wage earning capacity award of 75%, which equates to 425 weeks. Again, assuming the same average weekly uh, rate of $450 per week, that uh, base value award is $191,250. But after we reduce it uh, using um, special bulletin 222C, the actual aerial reduction re uh, reduces our exposure to approximately $157,745. So this sounds good at the outset, like, hey, Greg, why, why is this such a problem? And by the way, please remember that these exposure values that we're talking about here now, uh, or award values, are irrespective of the medical exposure in the case. Because remember, the aggregate trust fund does not present value or discount medical, nor does it deal with medical in any way. So right now, all it's doing is saying essentially, hey, this award, uh, here's what the present value of it would be. Pay it to us, the state of New York, and then we're going to turn around and pay it out to your wonderful claimant. And the problem, and the reason this is so um, bad for carriers, is that we probably would have uh, been able to negotiate an even lower present value of that section 32 if we were to do a lump sum with our adversary, right? Uh, typically, uh, we're reducing our exposure value of cases, even after awards, based on things like litigation risk, based on things like the person's personal situation. You know, maybe the claimant wants to buy a house, they want the money now. And of course, the classic, hey, Christmas is coming, uh, and they need some money in their pocket. The problem occurs when the judge of compensation orders the insurance carrier to pay into the aggregate trust fund. Well, at that moment, if you're the claimant or claimant's attorney, you know exactly what that value is going to be reduced to. And you can simply sit back and wait for the money to deposit in the aggregate trust fund and then turn around and negotiate directly with them. And of course, the aggregate trust fund is probably going to be a little less uh, careful about how they negotiate or a little... Uh, less conservative because it's not their money. It's like they've been given someone else's money to play with and negotiate that settlement. So in our opinion, it really actually spurs more litigation than it resolves uh, when we know there might be an aggregate trust fund deposit ordered at the end of a trial or settlement or award or stipulation because we know we are going to be losing some of our leverage or momentum into that Section 32 settlement. Now, when you're thinking about whether this is the type of case that uh, you may have to make a deposit, just think to yourself, is the data loss in the last 16 years, um, has there been an award or stipulation of permanent partial disability? Always ask the question, is there a third party pending? Because there is a rule that says that if there is a third party uh, risk transfer opportunity pending, that the judge of compensation should not order a deposit into the aggregate trust fund. And the reason for that, of course, is if there is a pending third party case with the potential to reduce our overall exposure and reduce the amount of payment that we'd have to make to the claimant, because of course we might be due some reimbursement or recovery, the judge should not be uh, asking us to pay into the aggregate trust fund money that the trust fund is going to probably have to uh, disgorge or return to us eventually anyway. And the last thing I'd, I'd mention is you need to look for a decision from the board, from the judge of compensation, actually directing deposit. Uh, we see it much more frequently now than we've seen in the past, uh, but typically the judge will say, okay, I'm, you know, the trial has come to an end, I'm gonna give an award of 
loss of wage earning capacity, and in six months I'm ordering the parties to make a deposit into the aggregate trust fund. And the reason they're giving that six month window is to allow for any third party issues uh, or any other issues to resolve. How do you avoid making these deposits? Well, the easiest thing to do is to section 32 your cases. Uh, if you do a lump sum dismissal, there is no potential for the aggregate trust fund to become involved or for a judge to direct the proceeds into the aggregate trust fund. I see clients trying to do indemnity only settlements, trying to resolve these aspects of cases uh, because, hey, if I do an indemnity only, I know if I am ordered to uh, pay into the aggregate trust fund or we do reach a stipulation that end, results in payment into the aggregate trust fund, well, at least I know what my exposure was and I, I, you know, I know I, or I understood when I got into that settlement or that resolution of the case that the medical was going to be uh, off to the side. And the last thing I would just recommend is taking a look at your cases, particularly after you've been ordered to make a deposit in the aggregate trust fund and you do not want to do it, take a look, is there a third party potential? Remember, even if the uh, claimant in your workers' compensation case has not brought a civil action themselves, we still can on their behalf. Under Section 29, we have the opportunity to subrogate. And so we can bring that action and that will foreclose or stop the opportunity for an aggregate trust fund deposit. So there are ways to uh, sidestep this. All right, so that's a little overview of how aggregate trust fund deposits work. I'm gonna jump over now and um, open up the questions pane and see if I have any questions that anyone has typed in. And right now it's saying no, but let me just make sure I'm gonna have to double check and open the window. All right, if you have any questions about this, type them in now. Uh, this is the reason we do these webinars live is because I'd like to uh, try to hear what you're saying and get some feedback from you about these topics that we're talking about. And I know, by the way, that today's topic is a little bit esoteric, but it's one of those things that comes in at the end of the case. You know, you've resolved your matter or you've gone all the way through trial and you've gotten to judgment, you've gotten to an award, and then all of a sudden you get this judicial order that says, all right, you're on the hook carrier for 50% loss of wagering capacity, and you're gonna be making that as a deposit to the aggregate trust fund. You know, two things should be going through your mind. First, can I avoid that? Is there a third party settlement? Is there some reason why it shouldn't be? And we should be putting on our thinking caps because we should be trying to section 32 this case before that aggregate trust fund deposit has to be made. That's when you're gonna have uh, your control and leverage and ability to do that. All right, I'm opening up the panel one more time. I don't see any questions. So I'm hoping uh, that this presentation was useful and uh, on point and maybe asked, answer the questions before you had a chance to ask them. All right, everybody, I hope you have a great week. It's pouring rain here today in New York City all day long, and I hope for sunny skies for you, and I'll see you next time, uh, next month, when we do our next New York Workers' Compensation Webinar. Have a great day, everybody.